0: This is episode number 122. Is it better to be a generalist or a specialist? With David Epstein. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day.
1: We need to be really attuned to match quality, which is the term economists use for the degree of fit between individuals' abilities and their interests in the work they do. And it turns out that that has a big effect on your apparent grit. As one of the researchers I talked to put it, when you find fit, it'll look like grit. If you get people in the right thing, something that suits them, then they will display the characteristics of grit anyway.
0: Thanks so much for hanging out with me today. And I think you're going to be pretty excited about today's guest. Today's guest is a fascinating, best-selling author, David Epstein. He's the author of two best-selling books, The Sports Gene and his more recent book, Range, Why Generalists Trump in a Specialized World. He is currently an investigative reporter at ProPublica and was formerly a staff writer at Sports Illustrated. David's new book, Range, makes a strong case that it is better to be a generalist rather than a specialist in both sports and in life. I'm sure you've heard of the cult of the head start or Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule, but David Epstein argues that you don't need it to be successful. We often assume that the greats in sports, in music, in art, and in education started at a very young age and were singularly focused their entire lives. But in David's book, he shows us that the opposite is true and that being a generalist gives us a better chance to succeed than early specialization. In this thought-provoking episode, you'll learn why. And as a special treat today, my friend and previous podcast guest, Brad Stolberg, is joining as my co-host. And if you forgot, Brad is the co-author of Peak Performance and The Passion Paradox. In today's episode, you will hear about what it was like to debate Malcolm Gladwell, In an interesting story of Tiger Woods, who was a specialist versus Roger Federer, who was a generalist, wicked versus kind learning environments and what those are, if there is a specific age to start specializing in sports, the importance of quitting or when to quit, what match quality is and why being a generalist allows someone to find match quality, and conceptual versus procedural learning. If you like this episode, make sure to take a screenshot on your phone and share the show on social media or just tell your friends about it. I think that this book and this topic is really interesting and a lot of people could benefit from it. And thank you to those of you who have left reviews on Apple Podcasts. I read them every week and it's really fun to read what everybody is saying about the show and I'm so glad that you guys are also enjoying the 10-minute Crush It Monday solo episode that I do every Monday. Big thank you and shout out to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon. Kicking just a couple bucks a month to the show helps ensure that the audio quality stays amazing. And thank you to Roma, who is the audio producer and professional musician who makes sure that the audio quality of this podcast is great. And also to my assistant, Tina, who helps us get these amazing guests and reaches out and helps with scheduling. So thanks to those of you who are supporting on Patreon. And again, that's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney Show. You also get the opportunity on Patreon to submit questions to podcast guests. And a few days before I record an episode, I go on Patreon and I tell you who my guest is in advance. And if you have any questions, I include it in the show. And last before we get into it, I have a Moxie and Grit Jersey that I just put on the Moxieandgrit.com website. And that's moxy and Grit.com. and the cycling jerseys are a limited edition. I only ordered a small amount and they are available for pre-order through August 2nd and they will ship on August 16th. So if you don't submit your order, it's possible that we will run out. So I hope you guys like those. And we also have three new pairs of socks up on the website to help you in your summer adventures. That is moxieandgrit.com. And that, again, is my brand that I started about a year ago. All right, let's get into this really interesting episode with David Epstein from Range with my co-host, Brad Stolberg. Welcome to the show, Dave Epstein.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Brad Solberg is also co-hosting with me, and he's been on the show a couple of times as well, so I thought it'd be fun to have kind of a, a group chat here.
1: Yeah, yeah it's great to be back. I appreciate that, but like I told you, my one condition for the interview is that Brad not be involved, and so here you're violating... Um, no, I'm just kidding. I love talking to Brad, even when it's not being recorded. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so I was really excited about your book Range because I consider myself a generalist and there's been a little bit of criticism from some of my peers that I should be more single-focused on just one thing. But for me, I found a lot better success whenever I have lots of different things that I'm passionate about to focus on. And I love that your book had a lot of different things about being a generalist. So what made you write this book?
1: It actually sort of, the genesis of this book was sort of two specific things. The first was after my first book, I got invited to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference to debate athletic development with Malcolm Gladwell. And this was set up as 10,000 Hours versus the Sports Gene. That was the name of my first book. And it's on YouTube. And, you know, he's very clever and I didn't want to get embarrassed on stage. And so I tried to anticipate what he would argue. And he had written about the primary importance of early specialization in athletes. And so I said, if that's his hypothesis, then I'll go look at the data. And what I found was that in in most sports, what scientists find is that athletes who go on to become elite have what they call a sampling period where they learn these broader skills. They learn about their interests and abilities, and they delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. And so I I brought that up in the debate. And afterward, when we're coming off the stage, he was like, you know, you got me on that. That, like, doesn't fit with my hypothesis. (laughs) very open-minded thing of him to say. And we became running buddies and we would talk about this, but I was not remotely ready to write another book. And so I sort of filed it away in the back of my head and what we called the Roger versus Tiger problem because it was contrasting the very focused development of Tiger Woods and the the, the dabbling and more generalization of Roger Federer. And I didn't think about it much. And then like two years later, I got invited to speak to a group of military veterans who were given scholarships to aid career transitions from the Pat Tillman Foundation And one of my former running training partners was one of these people. And so I go talk to them and I mostly talk about this late specialization in sports, thinking like maybe they'll kind of see an analogy to their sort of delayed specialization. And they saw more analogies than I had even considered. And they were so enthusiastic about it. And so many of them wanted to stay in touch and follow up that I sort of this all came back to my head. And I said, maybe the sports findings are really just a good analogy for jumping off and looking at this in the rest of the world. And that is, in fact, the structure of the book. Basically, sports serves as the baseline analogy to look at all these other domains. I should say the idea was the proposal was called Roger versus Tiger, and it was going to be when is it better to be more like a tiger, more singularly focused early and when to be a Roger. But so many of the domains were sort of going in in one direction and the ones that I thought were interesting to write about that I kind of would give lip service to the specialization throughout the book, but decided to focus on the, on the Roger path, as it were.
0: Can you tell people the story that don't know the different story between Tiger and Roger and how they both evolved?
1: Sure. So Tiger Woods, even if you don't know the details, you've probably like maybe absorbed the gist of it a little bit where he was seven months old. His father gave him a putter, not trying to make him into a golfer, just like gave it to him as a toy. And he's carrying around in his baby walker. And 10 months, he imitates a swing. He was very physically precocious. You know, by two, he's on national television showing off his swing, also on YouTube. And... By three, his father's media training him. You fast forward to age 21, he's the greatest golfer in the world. Roger Feder, on the other hand, played a variety of sports. His mother was a tennis coach and she refused to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. So he tried, let's see, handball, volleyball, basketball, soccer, swimming, wrestling, table tennis, skiing, diving. I know I'm missing a couple, but whatever, racquetball. Point being, badminton, he played over his neighbor's fence. He dabbled in all these sports when his coaches wanted to bump him up to a higher level with older kids. He declined because he just liked talking about pro wrestling with his with his friends after practice. And when he finally got good enough to warrant an interview from a local newspaper, the reporter asked him if he ever became a pro, what he would buy with his first hypothetical paycheck. And Roger said a Mercedes and his mother, who like really didn't want him putting his focus on sports, was appalled by this and asked the reporter if she could listen to the interview tape, and the reporter obliged, and it turned out Roger said Mercedes CDs, which just means he wanted more CDs in his Swiss-German accent, not a Mercedes, and his mother was fine with that. So this was like, in every way, whereas Tiger Woods, when he was four, was saying like, I'm gonna be the next Jack Nicholas. These were just these polar opposite paths of development, both of which led to the top. But what I was curious about was which is the norm? Because we only sure. tell one of them, right? We know both these athletes, but we only know one of their development stories.
2: So, Dave, something that I found really interesting in your book is this dichotomy between wicked learning environments and and kind learning environments, where wicked learning environments, at least how I understood this, they often change over time. There are many different variables. There's all kinds of complexity, lack of predictability, whereas kind learning environments, pattern recognition goes a long way. Things are pretty stable. The context doesn't really shift. And you make a really intuitive point and back it with a ton of science, because that's what you do, that being a generalist benefits people in wicked learning environments because you have a wealth of experiences to draw upon when the context changes. But I kept thinking, isn't golf a pretty wicked environment? Like the weather changes, the winds could blow differently. You can't show who's going to show up. How do you reconcile that?
1: I mean, I think golf, like nothing is completely static, but I think golf is about as kind as you can get. Like mm. weather changes and people do worse typically is what happens. But people who study golf categorize it as almost like an industrial task. You're mostly trying to do known things over and over with as little deviation mm. as possible. I mean, so there's huge improvement when you're playing the same course and things like that. So there are always some variables, but they are relatively slight, like the kind of wicked learning is a spectrum. And I would say all sports are more toward the kind end of the learning environment than most of the other things that people are engaged in, in the world. But one of the prime factors of a kind learning environment is that you get automatic feedback that is Mm -hmm. immediate, automatic, and 100% accurate. Mm. And, And that's certainly a feature of golf. And the other features are like the rules don't change. And those sorts of things. And so it, it has most of the features of a kind learning environment. But again, of course, it's, it's a spectrum for sure.
2: Yeah. And I guess, like I was thinking, you know, when you compare it to chess as perhaps the ultimate kind learning environment, then it seems a little bit more wicked. But I guess if you compare it to any kind of creative pursuit, any sport, as you're saying, is going to seem kind. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. Chess, I mean, chess, you're right, which is, again, one of the reasons why it's so easy to automate. Um, yeah. And I think as sports go, you know, golf, if like robots could have the motor skills, it would be like a ballistics game, basically. Yeah, right? it's which, funny. Which you be you took the at. words out
2: of my mouth. I was just thinking that like another good proxy for this is, you know, what could a robot do reasonably well? And I could totally imagine a robot crushing in golf, but having a much harder time on a basketball court.
1: And part of the problem, right, is because the basketball court requires anticipatory skills, yeah. and that's like a whole other ball of wax. And so I think part of the problem has been taking from these kinder learning environments and extrapolating to the more wicked ones where like, you know, Google's AI was beating chess. And so then they decided they could predict the spread of flu, right, where they had this very famous paper, I can't remember if it was in science or nature, but one of the the biggies, and Mm -hmm. where they announced that using search terms and machine learning, they had predicted the spread of flu more quickly and as accurately as the CDC. And so that's this big paper. And then it got worse and worse every year because it turns out, people don't search the same things. and There's all these other variables. And yeah. several years down the road, they missed by 100%. right? And then there's no paper. Then it's nobody hears anything. Then it's just yeah. now if you go to the Google Flu Trends website, all you see is it's a holding page that says it's early days for these predictions. You're like, well, you guys didn't think that when you were publishing in science, but now it's early days. Okay. Okay. Sure.
0: I was chatting about this with my husband and we talk, we're talking about sports and we live in Canada. So he was saying that in Canada, you kind of have to specialize, like, we don't like hockey, and we don't play hockey, but <laughs> the hockey players are going into, you know, these advanced leagues when they're kids. And it seems like most of those hockey players did that. So, like, what age do people need to start specializing in a sport where you can't just, like, walk up to a start line and just start upgrading to a pro level?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple things with hockey. First of all, I made sure to include a hockey study of current NHL players in the citations, which shows that they were multi-sport athletes, like they follow this same pattern of delayed specialization. And what you see, and actually speaking of Gladwell, he's written about this quite a bit, is in hockey, when selection is really early in Canada, what you see is this very strong relative age effect where you see you know, this incredible overabundance of kids who are born in January, basically, because when selection is pushed earlier, the earlier you push selection, the more likely coaches are to pick based on biological maturation. And that usually means kids who are just born early in the selection year, right? I was looking at data for the UEFA U-17 championships, probably the most important, you know, junior soccer tournament in the world recently. 47% of the kids were born in the first three months of the year and 6% in the last three months. Because when they're early selected, those kids are like almost a year older. And then if you go to the elite level, that totally disappears, which yeah. tells you that you're definitely selecting based on the wrong characteristics. So one thing I think Canada has going for it is the best way to make a country good at any sport, in my opinion, is to market the sport and have a huge number of people with a huge number of different backgrounds trying to participate in it, which, which hockey certainly has. And I actually don't think... I think there are a lot of devils in the details of specialization, right? So when I lived in Brooklyn, there was a park right near me where a U7 travel soccer team met, okay? I don't think there's a single person in the world who thinks six-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of nine million people that they have to travel. Like, maybe that person is out there, but I doubt it. That's because they're customers for the adult who runs this league. But I think... And, you know, as some countries have recognized, okay, you're going to get kids in the soccer pipeline or whatever early, but have within that found ways to embrace a lot of what I think are the best principles of development, because I don't think the multi-sport backgrounds of a lot of these athletes, I don't think it really matters that they're formally playing multiple sports or not. I think it's about their movement diversity and the diversity of problem solving. And so like France you know, who won the last Men's World Cup, they started overhauling their development pipeline decades ago where kids can get in early, but then they play on different shaped fields and with different types of balls, on different surfaces, different number of players. So they're they're playing soccer, but they're really diversifying the challenges in a way that I think fits this classic research finding that says breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer, meaning transfer is your ability to take your skills and apply them to new situations, which is what you really want as you go up levels. And what predicts your ability to do that is how broad the training you've had before that is that forces you to form these sort of more general models that you can you can flex to new challenges. So I don't think necessarily getting into a sport early is, is necessarily bad in itself, but it's usually a proxy for all these other bad things about development, I think.
2: So I have a question. So let's take it down a notch or five and, and not think about what's going to make an elite world class athlete. But just think about parenting a kid that wants to have fun and a part of having fun is competing and winning. Yeah. Uh, if you've got a kid that at age eight just falls in love with the sport of basketball, let's say, and wants to play year round, wants to play in the summer league. And it's not you as dad or mom that's telling yourself that story. The kid actually just wants to specialize in basketball. Do you hold that kid back or do you give that kid permission? And maybe another way to ask it is is in sport and perhaps in other things. How much of the specialization effect is just simply that kids burn out because their parents are forcing them to do something they don't want to do? And I get that you're going to gain all these other physical qualities by playing other sports or if it's cognitive or emotional by having those other experiences. But what do you do with the kid that really wants to go out and do the sport? I think you wrote in the book that Tiger Woods said in an interview that his dad never once forced him to golf. He he was driving. What do you do with that?
1: I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, that Tiger Woods was not manufactured by us. His father clearly created a training plan after Tiger showed this very unusual prowess and interest. And I think the second most important development story that gets extrapolated to everything is Mozart, right? And same same deal there. So I was looking at all these letters. Maybe I'll add this to an afterword or something. But. There's a cool letter, for example, from a musician who comes over to Mozart's house and he's to play with a group of musicians with Mozart's father. And little Mozart comes in and is like, hey, I want to play second violin. And his dad's like, you've never had a lesson. Like, get out of here. You can't play if you haven't had a lesson. And Mozart starts crying. So this musician who who recorded it says, "Okay, I'll go in the other room and play with him, so he stops crying. Next thing you know, they hear second violin coming from the other room, right? So Mozart's father comes in, and sees he's playing with this made-up fingering and all this stuff. And the letter writer says, this part I remember verbatim, little Wolfgang was emboldened by our applause to insist that he could also play the first violin. And then he plays the first violin with his made-up fingering. And then his father responds to this and facilitates this incredible amount of practice. So neither one of these were manufactured. So I still think, A huge part of this delayed specialization is a match quality issue, where the more you delay specialization, the more likely someone gets in something where their talents and their interests fit, right? So I still think the best way to get even a Tiger or Mozart is to expose someone broadly and see what takes off. If the kid is really driving it and it isn't just like the shiny stuff of these like select leagues and all this kind of stuff, I wouldn't hold them back. I would attempt to vary the challenges again to make it like the futsal of basketball, right? You go to Brazil, all the kids are playing like sand one day, cobblestones the next day, all this stuff. So I would try to do that for sure as opposed to – you know, if you want to win like 10 year old championships, what you do is you like you run certain kind of press and you teach all these closed skills and how to run plays and all this stuff. And nobody like learns the real skills they're going to need later on, but you can still win. But the way to develop the best 10 year old is not the same as the way to develop the best 20 year old. So I wouldn't hold them back if I thought it was very them driven, but I would try to vary the challenges within that um, to what I think is important to your second question about burnout. I don't know the extent to which burnout helps form that pattern, but I think it's significant. And It reminds me of this study, this famous tennis study done in Sweden that was looking at really promising kids who were identified as talented. And some of them went on to the top 100, and I think one or two went on to the top 10 in the world. One went on to be number one. And what you would see was when these kids were identified as talented, they would then get taken and moved into what the researchers called a restrictive environment, where whatever was working for them was suddenly out the window as soon as they got identified as talented to varying degrees, and especially the girls. If someone identified a girl as really talented, they would be put in, like, a very stringent program from then on. And almost all of the top-ranked youth were quit by the time they were 17, the girls especially. Yeah. Yeah, and and it was the more restrictive—yeah, oh yeah, that too. The more restrictive the environment they were placed in, you know, the more likely they were to quit. And I think—so I, I admire someone like Judy Murray, Andy and Jamie Murray's mother. She has basically this, like the French developments pipeline for soccer, but she has for tennis where she'll take kids and be— parents are okay giving their kids to Judy Murray because of her name and taking them out of the other development systems. And then she'll have them like doing the futsal of tennis where it's like they're playing through tree branches. They're doing stuff with rackets and balls. But other than that, it's kind of unrecognizable to tennis, but it's tennis like enough that parents are cool with it while incorporating this sort of broad training. So, so I think stuff like that is kind of a brilliant way to, to marry these, these issues.
0: And I think uh, you really kind of shook up some people with talking about the importance of quitting something and quitting quitting often. Can you elaborate on that? Because Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, I read that and she has the grit scale and the grit test. And one of Mm -hmm. the questions is about like, are you able to finish something to the end? And I actually thought it was super interesting how it's actually good to quit sometimes. So like when should people quit whenever they get started and how should they know if it's the right thing to do?
1: So – and the question in the grit survey is do you always finish something when you start it, Mm -hmm. not are you able to finish it? And and let me point out that I subscribed to Angela Duckworth's newsletter, okay, and two days before my book came out – maybe this is a coincidence, maybe not. doesn't matter. I'm glad she did it. The title of her newsletter was Summer is for Sampling. And it was all about how you should do a whole bunch of different stuff because you don't want to be too gritty until you know where the grit should be applied. And then she says, it took me a decade to figure out where I should be gritty. So as of now, I think Angela Duckworth and I are on the same page. If the idea is be gritty when when you should be, I totally agree with that. And so there's even an article written about, about how she suggests taking a generalist approach. And I'm like, all right, well, now I'm totally confused about how exactly we're supposed to apply grit. But I think the issue is, we need to be really attuned to match quality, which is the term economists use for the degree of fit between individuals' abilities and their interests in the work they do. And it turns out that that has a big effect on your apparent grit. As one of the researchers I talked to put it, when you find fit, it'll look like grit. If you get people in the right thing, something that suits them, then they will display the characteristics of grit anyway. So they you know,
2: like what they're doing and there's a quality of match. They're good at it. makes and total I, sense.
1: And I think this is intuitive to those of us who have trained in sports, right? Like, so I was a college athlete and some of the grittiest people I've ever seen in the world on the track were the biggest chickens I've ever seen in the classroom and vice versa. So I think it's demonstrably true that grit is not this, that grit is a, is a state, not a trait. It doesn't just run across everything you do. We could put any of the three of us in an area where we feel incompetent and I bet we'll be a lot less gritty, you know, than you are when you're cycling or than I am when I'm writing or, or whatever it is. So I think the issue is we shouldn't think about it as like quitting, we should think about it as searching for match quality and that you want to get signals about match quality. So the most famous GRIT study is the one done at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy, where GRIT was found to be a better predictor of who would get through BEAST barracks, the six-week orientation, than whole candidate score, This, which is like test scores and athleticism, these other more traditional measures. And most most everybody gets through BEAST anyway, but it's good to know that GRIT was a better predictor. But you have a big restriction of range problem in this issue, which is you've already pre-selected people for certain traits, so you've gotten rid of the other variables for the most part, and you've pre-selected them for a very specific short-term goal, right? Right. A six-week goal, but life isn't a six-week orientation. And so when you zoom out and look at the longer course of these very gritty cadets, since the 1990s, since the rise of the knowledge economy, about half of them have been quitting the army on the day that they're allowed. And the goal of West Point is not to produce people who get through beast, it's to produce the future leaders of the army. And the problem essentially turned out to be that with the knowledge economy, where these broader skills are more valued, where you if you can engage in knowledge creation and creative work, you have this incredible lateral mobility that you didn't have in industrial economy. And so these high potential officers would realize this and look for match quality outside the army because they had so little career mobility inside the army. And so the army started having better retention with things like this program they call talent-based branching, where instead of saying, here's your career path, go up or out. They say, here's one career path. We're going to pair you with a coach. Here's one career path. Try this one. Reflect on how it fits you with your coach. Then try this other one, this other one, this other. And we'll we'll triangulate a better fit for you. And they've had much better retention of what they categorize as high potential officers doing that than they have with throwing money at people, which was a half billion dollar wasted taxpayer dollars when they tried to give these retention incentives. And so that's basically like systematized quitting, except for they're not calling it quitting. They're calling it talent-based branching. And so I prefer to think of it like that, where you're trying to get these signals for the best fit for yourself.
2: I'm going to do my best to summarize because that's, that's what I do. So like what I'm hearing in, in my big takeaway there is that grit doesn't work until you find the thing that you actually have good enough match quality that you enjoy that, that fits your talents, then grit's really helpful because you don't want to quit when things get tough. So it's almost like the kind of thing that doesn't work until it does and then even if you're in that right match quality at a certain point, it probably stops working again because of like, you know, quitting and throwing in the towel can be super, super helpful, especially with loss aversion. It's very easy to keep pounding the same stone that's never going to break. But I think that what I get out of that is thinking of grit is, is this thing that, you, you know, it's going to be gritty regardless of what they do. And that's how they're going to be great is nonsense. It's actually let a kid sample a bunch, let a kid quit when they don't like things. Once they find the thing that they really like, same for an adult, then having some grit and the ability to persevere through tough times is really helpful.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great summary. And I don't think anybody would suggest like quit because a day is, is hard, right? So, so like Angela Duckworth has said, never quit on a bad day. But I mean, also arguably, maybe you shouldn't quit on a good day. I mean, it's a complex thing to... to right, like, not so much of- a
2: day, but, but maybe it's yeah. a year, maybe it's two years, what have yeah. you. I think about myself and my parents forced me to play saxophone yeah. starting in like fourth grade. And they forced me to play till ninth grade. And it was in eighth grade when I was getting really into basketball and football. And also, like, I have a loving relationship with my parents, but I just I had a big growth spurt. So I was like literally bigger than my dad. And I'm just like, I'm done. And I just stopped taking the saxophone home from school. And they were like those gritty parents before grit was a thing. It's like, you don't quit. You finish what you started. And part of me looks back and wishes that they would have let me quit in sixth grade because I don't I, I don't use any of my musical skills that I'm aware of. But that's just a tangent.
1: I mean, it's a difficult thing, right? Like walking that line between like, like that's the Freakonomic, Steve Levitt's experiment where he found that basically once people were thinking about, if they were asking the question, should I be quitting my job? Basically the answer was they should be, where he had to, they followed the results of a coin flip to decide if they would quit their job or not. And so it sort of, sort of seems like that's a decent heuristic. Whereas if you're like asking in that serious a way, you know, where you're like, typing into the, the Freakonomics website, should I quit my job, then you're probably ready for a move. And the thing is, in a lot of studies of people doing job quitting, they are set back initially, but they have faster growth rates because they get better managed. Right? So, so so,
2: so with the should I quit my job, here's something else that, that's an interesting. Like, it depends. Isn't there a risk with that, especially in the digital era? Like, when you say that, I immediately think of dating. And it's like, well, should I stop dating this person because, you know, someone else perfect could be out there? Yeah. So how does that play in when it, when it does feel like thanks to the internet and like for jobs, LinkedIn, for dating, Tinder, Forgot the marriage website that you go to to cheat on your significant other, but that exists too. Like with all of these options out there, couldn't one say that it's also a very dangerous thing to have that thought when you're comparing to some kind of perfect ideal and then make switches?
1: I mean, I think everything about like the social media atmosphere that forces people to compare to these ideals is dangerous in a lot of ways. As far as the switching... I mean, you know, there are people who have modeled like optimal dating, like John Allen Palos, who, and it's like, if you rate everyone you've dated, then you should marry it from one to 10, then you should marry, like you should date like, you know, 28% of all the people you estimate you'll ever date and then pick the next person who ranks above a seven for you and stuff like that. So you could like, you could like model this stuff, right? If you want to, the fact is like, you're not really going to do that. So you kind of have to go forward being a self-regulatory learner, trying not to, I mean, my issue where you say like looking at these like perfection, you know, on the internet, you can always get better is that's like outsourcing your quest for fulfillment and match quality and those sorts of things. I think that's what a lot of what happens is people are, you know, surfing Instagram. And that's why I don't really do Instagram. And so I think we have to be danger. It's a danger to outsource like the creation of your values. And I don't know what the answer is to that.
2: And then my last question on this little romantic tangent: Did you come across any data that shows that the more people that you date before you get married, the like longer your marriage is likely to last, or the the, the higher rates of it will last? I'm just curious if it applies there.
1: I don't know. Don't know. Haven't come across that, but I'd be interested to know that too. Yeah.
0: Another uh, thing I thought of in terms of quitting is in universities because people kind of get roped into these college programs where you're you're funneled along to get to your degree. But quitting part way is going to have a lot of consequences, both financial and time. So whenever you're 18 years old and going to college, like you don't know what you want to do and you just start taking all these general classes, but then you have to declare a major at at a really young age. And I think that that is doing a disservice because how many people do we know that pick something and just did it in their undergrad, but then they decided, well, I actually don't want to do that at all later and I should have quit earlier.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of bananas, right? Because usually this is like the tree thing, right? The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is today. So I have like lots of friends who went to law school right after college. And, and now they're like, I should quit, I should quit. And like three years ago, they were like, I should quit, I should quit. But you know, now I'm too far in. And it's like, they keep getting farther and farther in. So I think it's sort of like dangerous to go like straight to law or med school before you've had any period of self discovery. It's it, we need, you know, lawyers and doctors. It's just a, a question of how you get there. And so To your specific point about higher ed, there's a study I write about that where an economist wanted to examine the trade-off in higher ed between early and late specialization. And he found this natural experiment in the higher ed systems of England and Scotland. In the period he studied, the English students had to specialize much earlier. So like kind of when they were like 16, they had to decide what course of study they were going to start studying for to test into at at university. And the Scottish students could sample much longer if they wanted to. And he said, who wins the trade-off? Well, we found a couple things. One, the English students, the early specializers, jump out to an income lead because they have more domain specific skills. The later specializers, they get behind in income initially, but they pick a better fit because they have more match quality information. So they have higher growth rate when they get out. And after a couple of years, they close that income gap completely. They end up studying things that were much less often offered in their high schools because they're aware of more things in the world. And then the English students start quitting their career tracks in much higher numbers because basically they were made to choose so early that they made more poor decisions. But even so, when they quit, they get set back, but then have faster growth rates again, too. So they're also responding to match quality information. So I think that's a clear signal. You know, I I would say his work suggests that there's the greater return to college to match quality information than there is to specific skill learning but yeah. that it's been ignored in a lot of the research. And there, there was a Nobel laureate named Theodore Schultz who pointed that out, you know, some decades ago. But so the question is, if we systematize that ability to sample even more, would we get even more kind of bang for our buck? And my guess is probably we're not really sure where the, you know, where the cutoff is. So so I agree with you.
2: You know, it's it's bringing up an interesting thought for me, which is um I've got a, a family member that just finished up with medical school and. The individuals in medical school that are constantly complaining about how hard it is tend to be those that went straight through. Mm -hmm. And people that are older in medical school tend to not think it's very hard. And I used to Hmm. always just assume that it was like, well, life experience when you have two kids, when you're 30, when you've been sick, whatever, like puts things in perspective. But I almost wonder if the person that's 30 that's going back to medical school, like really wants to be there and the match quality is there. Whereas if the 24 year old that's gone straight through is now in their third year of medical school. It, it might just be like, well, crap, like, I don't really want to be here because I don't really want to be a doctor, but I've been on this path. I'm not like asking you a question. It's just an interesting thought. No, that I, no. I always just assumed it was more like you get older and you have perspective, but maybe it's actually like you really know that you want to be a doctor versus, well, I, I liked chemistry. I mean, I know my younger brother like did well in AP bio. So this is like in high school and then decided like, I'm going to do pre-med. And then once you start doing pre-med, like there's all these switching costs to switch out of it. So then you're kind of locked into that. And then you're in med school and it's like, whoa, well, what if I like writing? What if I like policy? So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah,
1: No, I, I think yeah. that's a great insight. And and in many ways, you usually think of someone like if they have to go back to school when they're older, they face a significant barrier, right? Like they might not remember a lot of the math. They haven't been in the classroom for a while and yet they're still able to do well. So I, I think I think there's a lot to that, to the fact that they choose to be there. And again, I don't think there's anything wrong, like with, you know, doing well in AP bio and going into pre-med, but I think we should try to make the switching costs as low as, as humanly yeah. possible, basically. And I don't think we remotely do that, right? In fact, it's more oriented toward this sort of like, you know, like academic torture where they're like, oh, here are these weed out classes that we don't even think you're going to use, but we're just going to run you through the paces just yeah. because that's what we did.
2: F- Follow up question in, in diverting more to the, the core audience of this podcast so we're, we're talking a lot about range very chronologically. So have yeah. this experience, then this experience, then that experience. What do you think about, I guess, what's the opposite of chronologically on the same plane? So you are an amateur athlete that puts a lot of time and effort into your sport, and you are also a physician or a lawyer or a writer or an investment banker. And I ask that because all of us on the call, myself and you, Dave, we're certainly athletes second in writers first. Sonia, I'm not sure. You might have a tie. It might depend on the week. But we all have these two different things going on at the same time. So I'm curious if you could riff on that for a bit. And then just on a personal level, what do you most draw out of your endeavors as an amateur athlete that helps you in your career as a writer or speaker?
1: Interesting questions. I'm going to write down a note for myself.
2: Well, I mean, so- well, no, I and mean, the reason I think about that again is because I think it's like highly applicable to the audience. I I've written so many columns that are some variety of like what sport teaches you about life. Yeah. But it's always just been me riffing. Like very rarely. Like there's some science that shows that, you know, making yourself uncomfortable in sport helps you deal with stress in life. But outside of that very narrow science, there's not a lot that I've come across beyond just my riffing, and that's just my end of one opinion. So I'm curious if you can bring anything more to that.
1: Well, OK, so, I mean, th- here's something like very concrete that came to mind that I learned from. And there was a time in my life where I thought of myself as an athlete first, where basically like my running goals were for sure the most important thing to me. And does Mo- I mean,
2: Gladwell still think that way?
1: I think he might. You know, we had a funny I mean, he's <laughs> he is super serious. Yeah. And, you know, he was a Canadian provincial champion in the 1500, by the way, like he's legit. run. Yeah. He, he just like quit for a long time. And it's really funny because I remember I mentioned this when we were last at Sloan in March. Something about his, you know, his time, and he was like, "Isn't it funny that that's the only thing I care about?" And I'm like, "You just started a <laughs> podcast company, dude. I think like you care about some <laughs> other things." But in the waiting room, we were looking at. I told him that Nicholas Sparks, you know, who's like one of the best selling like fiction authors like living, I think, I, that he was a really good runner at Notre Dame, an 800 runner. And Gladwell was like, "Really?" So we go look at his page while we're waiting, and his FAQ, like with the bottom's FAQ notes, you know, I mean, he sold like millions of millions of books like really millions. And one of the things in his FAQ is says that, yes, he was an 800 runner. And it's like, if you average my best times, they came out to like between, you know, 149 and 151 or something. So it clearly read to me as like, this is so important to him that it's in the middle of his author (laughs) FAQ. And he's trying to like futz with the numbers to make his times look as good as possible. So it's like, you know, you still care about this stuff so much, even after having all these other accomplishments. But Okay. So for speaking, one of the most concrete things I've taken is that I'm, I get very nervous before I give talks. And I used to get very nervous before I race like sweaty palms before I gave my Ted talk, this got cut out, but there was this like tech malfunction. Cause they were trying to like bring the NSA director in via satellite. Cause Edward Snowden had talked via robot the day before and all this crazy stuff. And everything just goes dark. Like I go up on this red thing, you know, is like Will Smith and like, you know, Bill Gates, all these people. And, and it just goes dark right away. Right. And it turns into this like very harrowing moment. And I was really nervous before it. But luckily I realized like when I was running that, you know, you get a warm up routine and once you sort of do these things, you, you, I don't get not nervous, but I just like know how to deal with it. And so that was something I really learned to have these sort of routines, but also to not be too rigid about them. Right. And this gets a little bit into my interest in stoic philosophy, I think, which is, I originally was one of those athletes where the warm up never goes how you want, right? The meat's running ahead or it's running behind or the order gets changed or your shoelace rips or you lost your number. Like, never. There's a big line for the bathroom. Never. And the bigger the meat, the less good it goes. Because when you're at pen relays, yeah, then course. you're they hold you in this pen for like 40 minutes and you can't do anything. And so, I was one of those, <laughs> yeah. And so I was one of those athletes for a long time who was always like, man, like, this race would have gone well, except this like stupid thing happened during the warmup and like, you know, but then I sort of realized stupid things always happen during the warmup and they will never not happen. So if you're too tied to that vision in your head of like how exactly it's going to go, you're going to be screwed every time because it never works out that way. So the combination of having certain things that I would do before I go and also the acknowledgement that it is never going to go before you get up there the way that you expect. So not having too rigid of an idea of it, those are things that I like, exactly apply to when i'm speaking i I even use like specific aspects of my old running warm-up before i go speaking and it helps me just get in the right frame of mind to go do it and also that knowledge that i'll be really nervous before but once i get up then i then i feel great like once the gun goes great it's the before part that i hate so that's been like direct transfer In, in a more conceptual level i think this idea that you know you learn as you get better like for a while, you can just do the basics and get better. But as you get better and better, you can't really just do the basics anymore. And so just that idea of like, you can't lift the same weights the same number of times every day and expect adaptation. That might stop you from sliding backward, but it's not going to make you better. And so I'm constantly trying to do different stuff. Like when the sports team came out, the like very few, only people who know me really well know that two weeks later, I left and went to ProPublica. I still get introduced as from Sports Illustrated sometimes. I haven't been there for six years. Right? I, I left to go to ProPublica because I thought there were skills that I needed to develop. And in the middle of range, when I got stuck, I went and took a beginner's writing class in fiction online, and it turned out to be like one of the most important things, helping me get over some writing. So it really oriented me toward the idea that if I'm doing the same stuff that I'm already comfortable with, that I'm already competent in, then I might not get worse, but I also won't be getting better. So on the conceptual level, I kind of took that from training.
0: Yeah, and I think that this is a good time to bring up how people learn, and I loved how the math example was used in the book because my background's in electrical engineering, and I'm totally guilty of just trying to memorize how a problem is solved and then just trying to look for the pattern and repeat it instead of really trying to figure out what you're actually doing. And mm-hmm. and that's really nuanced. So hearing how it was written in the book made it really helpful to be able to say, yeah, that's, that was my problem. And that's why I struggled so much.
1: You know, I, I appreciate that. I really like that chapter and it seems to people like when I give talks or interviews sometimes that I have this incredible memory for studies, which I kind of don't, but I've read so much of this kind of research about learning that I know how to like, I mean, if I put my keys down and spin in a circle, I'll lose them like the next guy, you know, but when it comes to talking about these, these studies, I seem like I do because, you know, I incorporate some of the things I wrote about in that chapter, like spacing, where I circle back to topics a lot. Like I have multiple things going on at once and then I circle back to them. So the one of the famous studies here, what, what I mean by spacing is So in this particular study, Spanish language, people who had knew no Spanish were one group was trained for eight hours on Spanish vocabulary. The other group, four hours one day, four hours a month later, same total training. Eight years later, when they were brought back with no training in the interim, the group that had the space training remembered 250% more eight years later. And it turns out that the way to like really move something into your long-term memory is to basically wait until you're on the verge of forgetting it before you, you come back to it. So I have these like this like network of stuff I'm interested in. I keep like circling back to things over time. And and after a while, I can remember them really well doing that. But mentioning math, right? Can I, there was one study that just came out that I would have loved to incorporate in my book. And I don't know if we're going like way too far from sports, but it might be.
0: It doesn't have, this doesn't have to be just about sports. I think that having... Come on, we're talking about generalizing.
2: (laughs) No, no, I know. Okay, so this... And and, and I think as you're saying all this, I'm thinking of too, like in athletic training, like you never want to leave a quality too far behind, but you also don't want to spend too much time on any one quality. Like you're revisiting a quality, you know, maybe it's once a month for a certain workout or maybe it's even a few times a year, whatever, depending on the quality, but yeah, somewhat similar.
1: And some of this gets codified in like periodization and plans and things like that, but which is like a really, you know, profound insight that that (laughs) some people had. But so this, this new study used interleaving, which is something I talk about in the book, which is essentially ma- variable practice, right? And yep. this is getting at that breadth of training, predicts breadth of transfer. And this new study is one of the most amazing, I read a lot of education research. This is one of the most amazing ones I've ever seen, randomized a bunch of seventh grade classrooms to different types of learning techniques. Some who got blocked practice where you see problem type a, 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 then B, 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 and so on. And those students learn how to execute, they learn what's called using procedures knowledge. They learn how to execute a certain procedure. The other student, other classrooms are randomized to interleaved practice where you don't ever see the same problem twice, basically. Or you may, but that would be like random. It's all mixed up and you're always seeing all these different problems. And those students get more frustrated. They rate their learning as worse. And then when they were all tested, those students destroyed the uh, the block practice students. The effect size was on the order of moving a kid from the 50th to the 80th percentile. OK, I picked that part of the curve because that makes it seem the most dramatic. So it's like a little bit of exaggerating with statistics. But that's like really incredible. And what it seems that this sort of practice does is it forces people, instead of learning how to execute a procedure, as you were saying, more to form these more abstract models about matching a strategy to the deeper structure of the problem. It forces yeah. them to do that because they can't just execute procedures. And I've I've never seen an effect size, you can take growth mindset, grit, whatever. I've never seen an effect size yeah. in a randomized study on the level of this interleaving study that just came out ever.
2: That reminds me too of some of the research that was in peak performance way back then, again, out of education research, this notion that skills come from struggle and you wanna like push to the point of resistance and then push some more. And it's not that you're developing grit in the student, but it's that you're developing the ability to sit with ambiguity and actually struggle and try to figure things out. um, And and that that's the skill in, in like cognitive flexibility. When you say this, I also think that if you believe that robots are going to increasingly do more jobs in kind learning environments that are predictable, then like that kind of block practice and the ability to execute in a process will probably be less valuable in the economy because that's the kind of stuff that robots can do better than humans all the time.
1: Totally, and and I kind of think, yeah, and I think I should have, you know, to cut a lot of stuff from the book, the manuscript was 20,000 words too long when I turned it in, but one of the things I cut was the work of this this scholar named James Besson who studies the impact of technology through history and says, you know, actually, people say we're in this special time where it's gonna be more disruptive and we're not, Disruption has been enormous in the past and it's part of technological history, but the change is occurring more quickly now. So people are going to have to relearn multiple times over their life, right? And he would cite these examples, like when the ATM was introduced, the idea was bank tellers would be out of business overnight. And in fact, as we've had more ATMs, we've had more bank tellers because ATMs have made each branch cheaper. So banks have opened more branches with fewer tellers per branch, but more tellers overall. And it's completely changed their job from one of repetitive transactions to being like a marketing professional. customer service. service. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And so he uses all these examples of stuff like that, where the change has been to this like much broader sort of skills when the computers take over the more sort of repetitive aspects of the job.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. And while we're talking about robots, I'm curious to hear your take that – and this is something that, you know, I live out in in Silicon Valley that, that comes up on hikes with friends that are like, uh, we're Luddites together. So we're kind of like in the middle of it, but against all of it. And you hear the, I'll get to my actual question. Sorry for being so long winded. You hear like people say that, you know, if a 50 year old gets displaced out of a job, well, they just need to go to a coding boot camp and learn coding. And to me, that sounds so freaking utterly ridiculous, like if someone told me that I can never write and like, oh, just go to a coding boot camp and learn how to code, I'd be like, you're insane. Like I'd rather move to China. Um, <laughs> what what do you like what do you make of that? And that's like a real thing. I'm seeing I was just visiting Detroit uh, where I grew up, and they have these like coding boot camps, and the way that they advertise it is like mid-career. but like, you know, no longer having job promises, like learn how to code,
1: yeah. I think there's a lot of stuff that comes out of Silicon Valley. First of all, where someone who has been successful in the sense that they've made a lot of money, right, whether they've done something useful or not, debatable, first of all, have decided that, like, this is all due to their own prowess, right? Like, just they are so great, everyone else can do what they do. Like, you actually see these, there's, like, these really popular, like, sometimes these, like, Twitter tutorials where someone who made a bunch of money basically says, anyone can be rich and here's the blueprint. All you have to do is do it. And that's not the case. And they undervalue the importance of luck. Luck, yeah. by a long shot, and so, so they, you know, so they have these very I know simple. i exact
2: Twitter thread, by the way. I think it's one of the most popular threads in the history of Twitter.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. And I'm not saying there's not valuable information in it, but anyway, it's but, not a
2: plug-and-play playbook. But yeah, go right. on.
1: And so, the other issue I think is. With people who've made a lot of money, is that they've, they and people around them have often decided that they have like somehow figured out the master algorithm to how the world works because they have made a successful business. And so they can solve all these social problems and all this other stuff, right? And so it's like, just go to coding bootcamp and they have these like very simple answers for things. And first of all, I don't think life is that simple, right? And I don't think coding is for everyone. And I don't know how well that feeds into jobs and stuff like that anyway. And I certainly don't think it's the best and most creative use of the skills that 50 year olds have, have built yeah. up, right? Like the, I was at a Motley Fool uh, event recently, you know, the investing website Yeah. and, They put up a poll, like based on something I'd written for the audience, maybe several hundred people, I'd say about 400, 500 people. And it was, what do you think the average age of a founder of a breakout tech startup is on the day of founding? 25, 35, 45, 55. 25 was the overwhelming favorite. Followed by 35, followed by 45, followed by 55. The answer is 45 and a half, basically, right? But just like we only hear the Tiger story, we only hear when Mark Zuckerberg says young people are just smarter. And he was 22 when he said that. And he founded his company Young. And so I think it's a really real shame. Mark Zuckerberg was right about fluid intelligence. Younger right. people have more fluid intelligence, but they have less crystallized intelligence, which is actually when somebody has to do something, often more what you care about. Yeah. And so if we can't find a way to make use of those and just say, whoever you are, go do this totally different thing. I just think that's a serious lack of creativity and a, and a one size fits all answer that, um, I don't really appreciate.
0: So how have you applied this focusing on generalizing to your career? Because there's a lot of specialization and a lot of time with really soul focus time on research studies on, on writing a book. What did you do to ensure that you didn't fall into this trap of being way too specialized?
1: I mean, first of all, I was living in a tent in the Arctic when I decided for sure to become a writer. So like I've (laughs) I've had my share of zigzags. And like I said, after the sports gene came out, like there were people who were involved in my business concerns or whatever you want to call them who thought I was an absolute idiot for A not starting on the sequel and B leaving Sports Illustrated right then to go to ProPublica. But to me, that's how you develop skills. You have to keep doing those things. So when when I became a staff writer, You know, my strength at at Sports Illustrated was that I took my very ordinary science skills and put them in the context of a sports magazine where they're suddenly extraordinary. It's like an intellectual arbitrage opportunity. But when I became a staff writer at Sports Illustrated, not long after I co-wrote the story that outed A-Rod for steroid use, I applied for an internship at ProPublica when it was a startup. And I get a call from them. They're saying, like, I don't think you know what you're applying for. You're going to be like scanning documents for people because I was on, you know, full time staff writer at Sports Illustrated. And I said, I understand. Like, just let me know if I get it. And I got it. So I went to SI and said, I think I want to do this for career development. I hope my job will be here when I get back. But if it's not, I understand. And I went and did this internship. So I went from having an office over 6th Avenue in Manhattan one day to scanning documents for Michael Graybell, the transportation reporter at ProPublica the next day. And it was one of the greatest learning experiences I've ever had. So eventually, some years later, I decided to go back there. And right after writing the sports book to leave that and report about you know, medical care and environmental pollution, cartels, whatever, all this different stuff. Because I think that's how you hone those skills by getting out of your rut of competence or as the economist Russ Roberts told me, it's a, the, I love this phrase. It's a hammock of competence because it's so comfortable. You don't get out and look what's outside and range is a totally different project for me. And now I have no clue what I'm going to do. So yeah. I'm like, I've become like linearly less goal directed since I was a teenager and I, I really have no idea what I'm going to do, but I guarantee it's not going to be whatever I just did. And maybe that's a mistake from a branding perspective, but that's like how I want to live my life. And And some of the things, some of those zigs and zags, I think, I think range would have been above my skill level when I wrote the sports gene. And some of the zigs and zags I took were what allowed me to do this. And I I hope I keep improving and I'll, yeah, so I don't have a problem with I don't think I need to be pushed at this point to zig and zag because it's where all my most important projects have never been something that I envisioned from far out. It's always something that I sort of respond to something that comes up. So, but I truly, I'm not kidding. I have no idea what I'm gonna do next.
2: What is a slight piggyback? What are your interests right now? Or are you still so in the thick of launching this book that it's been hard to step outside of it, but, but what's kind of piquing your interest in terms of either activities or content areas to explore?
1: Well, I'm pretty in the thick of it for sure, but yeah you know, and also been spending a lot of time with my kid, um, which I've really been enjoying. And that's been a new thing that I really want to experience. And I've realized that the autonomy of writing is like some of the other dads I've met, like they don't even know how to take care of the kid yet because they had no days off, you know, and I've been working a lot, but I also have work autonomy. So I feel really privileged for that. I would say I mentioned that I took this online beginners fiction writing class during range. Right. And one of the things that happened in that class was. You know, because there you go to this beginner's class and like nobody cares who you are. I took two classes actually. One, there was a Japanese comic book convention at a hotel like two blocks away from me, and I saw they were going to have a like a writing class. So I went over and took that too. Only like five people showed up, but like it was great. I don't think there's any number of beginner's writing classes I could take and not learn something. Yeah. Like literally. But so. I really valued those. And in in one of the classes, you had to write a story with no dialogue at all. And after doing that, I realized I had been really leaning on quotes to do explanation that I should be doing in writing in range. And I went through the whole manuscript, stripped a huge number of quotes, hadn't even realized I was leaning on them as a crutch to do explanation if I didn't quite understand something usually. And I think it made it a lot better, but I didn't even realize I was doing that until I was knocked out of it. And I loved... You know, that class sort of reminded me of the feeling of when I fell in love with writing in the first place, because it had sometimes became, you know, more of just a, just a job. And as you get more readers, you get a lot more scrutiny. And I tend to hear that very loudly. Um, and so I want to do more of that. My next thing is I want to learn some more fiction writing. And I've been devouring fiction as a reader, you know, more recently. Brad and I had, we exchanged some fiction recommendations. So that's what I'm interested in right now.
0: Awesome. Well, it looks like we're pretty much out of time. So thanks so much for joining the podcast. I think that our listeners are going to really get a lot out of this. And guys listening, if you haven't read Range, you should definitely pick that up and also pick up the sports gene. And Brad, thanks so much for co-hosting with me. It was really awesome to have your
2: insights. Wait, yeah, I- Read Range. It's a phenomenal book. And be on the lookout for the next great American novel written by oh, none other great. than David Askin. <laughs>
1: great. Great. No expectations. But Sonia, so I have a question though. before we go. Give me a criticism. Like give me something that you, you know, thought I did stupidly or didn't handle well or something like that.
0: Huh, now you're putting me on the spot.
1: Or something that particularly resonated with you, either one, fine.
0: I think the math chapter really resonated with me just because I so I went to grad school and my graduate degree was a combination of power electronics and biomedical engineering and I actually ended up struggling a lot. Like I was a a stellar student in undergrad, but I got to grad school and I was using the learning where I would just look for patterns and just trying to repeat the pattern. And I would really struggle with some of these exams because it was really the conceptual practice that you needed to know in order to solve these problems, because no problem is the same at that level. So I actually really struggled with that. So if I had read that chapter way back then, that would have been really helpful for me so that I could have learned how to learn in a better way.
1: That's really interesting. I appreciate that. And and the feedback really helps me learn like what resonates with people. I only learn it from hearing stuff like that. And and that's so similar to, to the invasion sports in the sense that you can teach what's called closed skills like running plays or very technical skills that will cause people to win when they're really young, but have nothing to do with as the challenges get harder, you know, equipping them to take those on. So I think that's a good, good analogy and a good spot. And I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. And I really also like the message that it's never too late to get started because as a cyclist, I hear people say, oh, I'm too old to start to start mountain biking or I'm too old to start competing. And I always tell them, like, no, you're not. I know lots of people that started competing in their 40s and they're they're doing awesome. And it's it's never too late to start. And I think having all of these different examples, all of these different studies and just people relate with things in different ways. Like some people want to hear about sports. Some people want to hear about academics. Some people want to hear about music. And I like the range of range. So that people could find what they related with, so that they could apply it to their life.
1: Well played. I'll pay you for that marketing um, <laughs> afterward. But yes. no. But I, but yeah. And people, I agree with cycling. And even if they're not doing well, they might love it. But one of the one of the, my favorite athletes I've ever met was Chrissy Wellington, who mm. didn't even sit on a bike until she was 27 and was oh. doing a sanitation project in the Himalayas and realized she could like keep up with Sherpas. Her entire career was like five years. She went, I think, 13 and 0 or something in in Ironman distance triathlons and like. I don't know. That was pretty cool. She just sort of happened upon it and she's a really cool and interesting person. And so not not saying that you should only take something on later if you're trying to get to that level, but I just, it's just a story I loved.
0: And where's the best place for people to connect with you?
1: I'm on Twitter at, at David Epstein and my website's davidepstein.com.
0: Sweet. Thanks a lot. Thank you. you guys learned a lot from this episode and i really loved having brad as a co-host as well i thought he asked some really interesting questions that i didn't think of and it's always good to have a little bit more color on the show so thank you so much you guys for listening if you haven't picked up david epstein's book make sure you do that and also check out the sports gene and hey he's on twitter that's how we connected to get on this podcast so make sure you send out a message to david on twitter and tag him and tell him how much you like the show Thanks so much for listening, you guys. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here on Monday.